I'd like to ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. As the hordes make their way out. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The Apostle Paul is addressing concerns about the church at Corinth. These concerns have been brought to him by three men in the church, Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. One of those concerns had to do with the sexual deviance and, and sins that so many in the church had grown up with that was normal to them, they had participated in even. And in some cases, these behaviors had followed them into the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul tackles this very important subject more broadly, really along the lines of the subject of the fruit of salvation. That salvation brings with it obedience to the truth and that a person cannot claim to be a believer in Christ while clinging boldly and proudly to sins of the past. So follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. On December 8th, 2021, just a few weeks ago, the Senate and the House of Commons of the Canadian Parliament passed Bill number C 4, and it went into law just this past week. Bill C 4 has added to the criminal code in Canada, making conversion therapy a crime. Conversion therapy being defined as any method whatsoever to try to change a person's gender identity to match what he or she was at birth. You can break this law by causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, by promoting conversion therapy, or by advertising conversion therapy. But that's just what's on the surface Just talking about or encouraging a person to embrace the gender of their birth can land you in prison for up to five years now. The preamble of the bill states that preferring heterosexuality and staying the gender you were born as is, quote, a myth. That it's preferable for all people to choose their sexual orientation, their gender identity, and gender expression. Translation for us, the government is now defining the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality as mythological and encouraging anyone to believe it is now punishable by prison time. Like our governing system, there are a lot of liberals and a few conservatives, but this particular bill was passed with zero dissenting votes. Even the so-called conservatives all voted yes. Why is this? Well, this is part of the exploding and emerging woke culture. It is the new Gnosticism, a belief in higher knowledge, and that only certain people have this higher knowledge, and that is the woke. This is precisely what was happening in Nazi Germany of the mid-1920s. And now there's such a desperate desire to be viewed as having this higher knowledge that even those who believe it's bogus are voting for it. Because now it becomes dangerous not to. So what does this mean? On the surface, it's condemning conversion therapy, which is is defined on the surface as forcing someone to to go back to a to their the gender of their birth almost at at gunpoint that you're forcing them to do this nobody agrees with this first of all because it doesn't work 
And second of all, because that's not the real issue. That's what's on the surface. What's the real satanic spiritual intent behind this? It is now against the law to preach, to teach, or to counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. The Canadian government is now getting ready to monitor, to censor, and to punish the content of sermons from pulpits in churches, of Bible-believing churches. They are getting ready to arrest pastors, lay leaders, counselors, anyone who speaks the truth of the Word of God on the subject of sexuality that does not conform with the government's radical definition. Even today, there are officers of the law seated outside of churches in Canada making sure people are wearing masks and are social distancing. And so any pastor or church who encourages faith in Jesus Christ, which results in a changed life, including a changed view of sexuality, is now guilty of a crime punishable by prison time. And since the, 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 the culture in the West has pretty much just bowed down to Caesar and we're letting law enforcement enforce masks and enforce vaccines and so forth, now we're used to it. And the culture is used to cops being outside of churches enforcing ungodly satanic laws. War has been declared on the word of God. War has been declared on Christ. And war has been declared on the church. We don't choose the battles that we're called to fight, but we do choose how we fight them. Today, an unknown member, an unknown number rather, of courageous Canadian pastors this day are immediately fighting back with the primary weapon of our warfare, and that is the truth of the Bible by preaching on biblical sexual morality. And thousands of American pastors are joining with them in solidarity to stand with the true church in Canada, those who will defend the truth at all costs. The Canadian government is bent on normalizing sexual perversion and making it now a criminal offense to oppose it. And so today we preach not only to support our brothers and sisters to the north, but to acknowledge that our own culture is basically in the same place. There are already 14 states in the Union that have similar laws. California is one of them. They just don't enforce it as much as they're about to. By the way, just so you know, there's no fear here as if a government decree could stop the kingdom of Christ from progressing. This is one time where it's okay to laugh out loud in church. Hang on. The government might stop the kingdom of God. It's probably the first and last time we'll ever do that. Here's the irony. Because of their attempts to stop the kingdom of God, thousands and thousands of gospel sermons are being preached this day on biblical sexual morality. And the kingdom of darkness is going to lose so many citizens who this day will repent and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's not conversion therapy, that's conversion. I want to spend some time talking about this because it is a dark and devastating area of our world. In the various pathways that the Lord has had me on in my adult life, I've seen firsthand the devastating effects of sexual immorality. I've seen the crushed spirit and the lack of will to live even in rape victims. I've seen the devastation on a family that unrepentant adultery has. I've seen the misery that is the reality of all homosexual and bisexual and transgender behaviors. And if anyone says that they're not miserable, they've just embraced that sin to such a degree that Satan convinces them that they've found some sort of key to happiness, but it's never satisfactory. It never fulfills in a way that only a right relationship with God can. Sexual sin is a massively scarring and traumatic event for so many Just as an example, in my own personal opportunities in my earlier years, I had the opportunity to work with many hundreds of children who have sadly been sexually abused and at a level that I won't describe from a pulpit of the Church of Jesus Christ. Horrific things that we won't even say aloud. 
It's the ultimate violation of a child's helplessness and naivete because the the vast majority of cases of sexual abuse happens from someone they know and love and trust. When the offender is a brother or a father or a mother or a trusted uncle or a longtime family friend, that causes immeasurable pain. And of course, the natural reaction is is to lose the ability to trust anyone at at an intimate level. But it goes farther than that. You might wonder, why is this such an epidemic in our world now? It's an epidemic because sexual sin gives birth to sexual sin. One thing that we dealt with continually was what in the field of sexual abuse is called sexual acting out. Children that, by means of sexual abuse, had their view of sexuality completely warped and twisted, and for various reasons, depending on the child, would the children would then begin to frequently look for opportunities, sexual opportunities of their own. That that a switch in them had been switched on far too soon. And because many children only have opportunities with siblings or with children of the same sex simply because of a a proximity such as school locker rooms, the incidence of same-sex acting out is extremely high. And so over time, this child then becomes convinced that this is who he is. A sexually driven boy or man who's driven to other men or a sexually driven girl who's driven to other girls. Statistically, broadly speaking, children who engage in sexual acting out tend to do so with at least three others. Turning the once victim now into a perpetrator. And those victims in turn, statistically, tend to act out with three others. You can do the math. This is the exact definition of exponential sin. I worked with enough children to see most definitely that they were acting upon the horrible patterns that had been foisted upon them, especially if the abuse went on for a period of years. And one of the horrible, terrible, confusing parts about sexual abuse and trauma is that the experience for many is a mixed bag. It's, it includes pain. It includes anger. It includes helplessness. But oddly enough, good feelings are also mixed in with terror. Just simply because we're physically made to respond to sexual situa- situations, many victims deal with the terrible fact that at some level they had moments of pleasure. And they believe they should not have had. And the guilt is overwhelming. And on top of that, the abusers, in most cases, give gifts and privileges. Especially as those in the position of power over the victims. It's a mind-twisting and soul-destroying sin. And given that sexual perversion and sin is such a prevalent theme in the judgment of God as presented in Scripture, it's clearly one of Satan's greatest tools to throw humanity into chaos and into pain. Whole societies reach a point in which sexual deviance and sin is now seen as normal. And that society begins to become useless. Because it's so warped God's intended design for marriage and family that the very building blocks of society are now taken out. Our society is now at that point. And so the antidote, the cure, the removal of blinders that can only come from one source, that is the truth. The truth. And here is this short text of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. We see the truth about whom Paul calls the unrighteous. And so we'll start broad and get more narrow, but I'd like to just give you five biblical truths of the unrighteous. This morning, five biblical truths of the unrighteous. We'll start broad and get more specific. First, the definition of the unrighteous. The definition of the unrighteous. The unrighteous person is the one who's standing before God is that of guilt, that of condemnation. They are the opposite of righteous. They are viewed by God in the courts of heaven, is completely and totally steeped in their own sin. There are no degrees of righteousness or unrighteousness. All humanity is in the two categories of the righteous, those whose standing before God has been changed to being innocent and for whom there is no more condemnation. And there are the unrighteous, 
Those who stand before God remains unchanged. They continue in guilt. They continue toward judgment. Now we could break down the definition of the unrighteous into two basic components. First of all, the unrighteous are wicked at heart. They are wicked at heart. There's no ignorance here. There's no oops. There's no uh, sense of I just didn't know. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, where do we see this in our text here? Verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's the basic meaning of the Greek word unrighteous. It literally means against righteousness. I am anti-righteousness. It's not a neutral position. The unrighteous are wicked because they are anti-righteousness. And the second component of the definition of unrighteous, not only are the, unwicked, are, are the unrighteous wicked at heart, second, the unrighteous are deceived at heart. They're deceived at heart. Verse 9 says, Do not be deceived. Meaning, anyone who believes that the sins he lists are okay and that you can still be a Christian while being in a state of unrepentance is deceived. It's a word that means led astray, in error. By the way, this is why you can't use logic, you can't use intellectual argumentation with the unrighteous who are so steeped in these sins They can't engage at a logical level. By the way, one of the philosophical tenets of wokeness is to disregard logic and philosophy of thinking. They can engage at a logical level, so what do they do instead? They use power, control, and intimidation to try to shut down the discussion, just like the entire Canadian government has done. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul explained this dynamic. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There is no repentance, which means a changed mind about your sin. Your sin is now your enemy. There's no remorse. And so our definition of the unrighteous, they are wicked and they are deceived. This is why you cannot use logic to get anybody into the kingdom. It must be the power of God through the word. There's a second biblical truth of the unrighteous. Let's look at the character of the unrighteous. The character of the unrighteous. If they're defined as wicked and deceived, they're known by their character. The primary character of the unrighteous, the root of all sin, is pride. It is pride. At the internal level... Pride is the deception of your own self-importance, of your own specialness above others. And if you believe this at a high enough level, then you sin in ways which hurt others and cause destruction around you. And you don't care. Pride gives birth to sin, and sin multiplies exponentially. Look at the overall list of these unrepentant sins which Paul enumerates. We'll deal with the sexual sins in a moment. But every one of these sins devastates others. It hurts others. The pride of the the sinner comes in truly believing that he or she is so self-important that the harm of others doesn't matter. Let's just walk through this briefly. Verse 10, thieves. Pride says to the thief, you are more important than the people who own these things you are stealing. The greedy The implication is that of the the pursuit of wealth or of pleasure or of power at all costs, at cost to family, at cost to friends. By the way, you put a bunch of greedy people together who have power backing them, we call that totalitarianism. Because those in power pridefully believe they are more important than everybody else. How about the drunkards? The root of drunkenness is pride in believing that you deserve the pleasure of being drunk or being high and causing harm to those around you. I've lost track of the number of times I've seen fear in the eyes of children whose dad can't stay away from the bottle. How about revilers? Revilers, this is a word for verbal abuse. A longer study of reviling in the Bible would reveal that revilers exert power over others using words, using denigration, using put-downs, and it also is a predictor of other forms of abuse, such as physical abuse and sexual abuse. 
Countless rape victims have recounted that the perpetrator called them horrible names in anger and in pure rage as the violation occurred as if it was the victim's fault it was happening. Revilers are the ultimate bullies because they must be in control of everyone around them because they are in their own minds more important than everyone else. How about swindlers? A swindler is a word that just means to snatch away. What's the difference between a thief and a swindler? The thief uses force and violence. The swindler is more sneaky. That's really the only difference. And all of the sexual sins listed are rooted in pride and they all hurt others indiscriminately. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. It's pride in these sexual sins that attempts to redefine sin using words like orientation and lifestyle and preference and identity. This wickedness, this deception, this arrogance, this pride starts at the grassroots level and as it gains more and more acceptance, it ultimately makes its way to the policy level in which the people with the power of enforcement, the government, are now dictating that what the Bible says is wicked is now the law of the land. So the character of the unrighteous is pride. It's the third biblical truth of the unrighteous, getting more specific now, the sexual sins of the unrighteous. The sexual sins of the unrighteous, it's shocking to see that basically half the sins that Paul lists are sexual sins. Sexual sin is so pervasive because it's God's uh, intention that sexuality be expressed in a certain way and Satan now strikes against God's original intent and his purposes for his creation. Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God created humanity as man and woman for marriage between a man and a woman, and one of the purposes of marriage, Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But sexual sin enters the world like a racehorse bursting out of the gates of Genesis. In Genesis, you see rape, incest, homosexuality, prostitution, adultery, Sex outside of marriage, even false allegations of sexual abuse used as a weapon. And these sexual sins, this is just Genesis, lead to such consequences as murder and imprisonment, the denigration of women, and ultimately the fierce judgment of God in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Paul lists some descriptors of sexual sin which define the unrighteous. And he gives five of them. The first one, the sexually immoral. The sexually immoral. This is just a general word for any sexual immorality. All sexual acts outside of marriage between a man and a woman. We get our word pornography from this Greek word, but it really has a much broader connotation than this. It's anything that contradicts God's perfect design for human sexuality. The human sexuality is meant for its full expression in marriage as part of the one flesh relationship of marriage and it fulfills the mandate to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And just a little contextual note here in chapter 7, right after this section, you have the norm. You have God's intention in verses 2 through 5. So there the the sexually immoral. Anybody who unrepentantly engages in that which is not within the confines of marriage. You have a second descriptor, the idolaters. The idolaters. We include this in the category of the sexual sins because it's sandwiched right in the middle of the list of sexual sins. That is by design. In Paul's day, pagan idol worship was intertwined with the practice of temple prostitution. That somehow fellowship or communion with the gods is supposedly achieved by sexual interaction with the temple prostitutes, both female and male, by the way. This was, by the way, how these temple cults funded themselves. And so when Paul includes idolaters with sexual sin, the Corinthian church would know exactly what he was talking about. We could call idolaters those who seek prostitutes, those who pay for for sexual pleasure. 
those who don't care about the person that they're using for their own pleasure as being a human being created in the image of God whose soul is caved in by an emptied of hope by denigration and the horror of being reduced to being nothing more than an object. How do we see idolatry today? There's a, a, there's a different name for it. It's called human trafficking. The reducing of human beings to objects for sexual sale. Paul gives a third descriptor. The adulterers. The adulterers, those who violate the holiness of marriage. This can be speaking of those who are married who are doing so or those who are, are not married violating someone else's marriage. We would notice that all these sins that Paul lists here are in the category of unrepentant sin because, yes, Christians struggle with sexual sin and true believers fall into unfaithfulness to their spouse, but where there's repentance, where there's remorse, a hatred of the sin and the desire to do everything possible to turn away from it, to avoid it, there can be forgiveness, there can be healing, there can be restoration. So there's the first three descriptors of sexual immorality. I... If you're counting, I said there's five, we've done three, and you may see one more. Men who practice homosexuality. We understand the intention of this translation. It's an accurate summary of the behavior, but in Greek, this is two descriptors, not one. Two different types of people, not one. And so we're going to divide them up according to the Greek text. The fourth category, then, we would call, according to the first Greek word in this this composite phrase, the effeminate. The effeminate. The Greek word that's, that's combined here literally means one who yields to touch, one who is soft. And without getting overly graphic, it's the most common word used in the ancient world to describe the passive sexual partner in a homosexual act. But this idea of being effeminate is pervasive and it includes the category of being so effeminate that one chooses to act like the other gender. And now with horrible invasive surgeries and terrible uh, drugs and chemicals used to keep people from going through puberty, to keep young people from going through puberty and, and terrible, horrible surgeries, now it's possible to even appear to be the other gender. And of course, we can extrapolate the principle that the other direction as well as being equally offensive, a woman trying to be man-like. In fact, later on in the same book here, in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains in chapter 11 that nature itself, our gut, our instinct, given by God, teaches us that women should look like women and men should look like men. The example he gives is having woman-like hair, long hair. That's not a legalistic stance on the proper length of hair. He's explaining that a woman should not try to look like and give the appearance of a man, and that goes the other way as well. And now, of course, the new trend is that you get to make up whatever gender you want to be, to, to be a blend or no gender at all. And this is presented as a heroic effort on the part of people and now children as well because adults are teaching them this. It's heroic because now they're finding their truest identity. All this is is a grotesque form of self-centeredness of everyone look at me. And now there's the growing insistence on the use of preferred pronouns. She or her Growing in popularity, the they or them pronoun for those who say they don't particularly identify as male or female. And now supposedly you have to memorize what everyone's pronouns are. I do want to address this. To be fair, we live in a sinful world that sometimes results in physical challenges in which our bodies don't work exactly right. We understand this. In fact, once in a while there may be a situation in which the factors that make someone clearly male or female are not fully there. Disproportionate hormone levels or even genital disfigurement from birth. We understand this. Jesus even acknowledged this. He said in Matthew nineteen twelve, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. A eunuch 
in first century times, we would define this as one who doesn't have the proper or fully formed genitalia of a man or a woman. Jesus said that some have been made eunuchs. That's the practice of castration of a servant. That was a first century reality. Jesus said there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This isn't referring to literal castration, but a man devoting himself to being single all of his life so that he might uh, devote himself to serving the Lord and choosing not to marry. And Jesus said there are those who have been eunuchs from birth, meaning that they're born with some sort of genital deformity or incapacity, which of course could include out-of-balance hormones. We understand that. We live in a sinful world. There are babies born with this problem. There are also babies born without arms or without legs or without proper organs that work right. But like any other challenge, as a result of sin in this world, we meet that challenge not with an identity, but with the gospel and with truth that if your body wasn't formed correctly, that there will be a day when you receive a new one. And that in Christ, that's what you look forward to. Your identity is not in maleness or femaleness or or somewhere in between. Your identity is in Christ. And in Christ, all things will be made new. And then Paul gives the fifth category, the second word that's combined into this phrase, the men who practice homosexuality, and this would be the homosexual. The homosexual. The second word combined into this one phrase is the specific Greek word for the dominant partner in a homosexual relationship, the sexually driven man, the sexually aggressive man. We see an example of an entire mob of homosexual men when two angels visit Abraham's nephew Lot in the city of Sodom to warn him of the impending judgment of God so that he might escape. And as guests in his house... Lot's house was surrounded by men so desperate to act out their wickedness that they demanded that Lot bring the men, the angels, out so that the entire mob could violate them sexually. They're literally about to pound the door down. And so the angels struck these men blind. Now, I don't know about you, but if I get struck blind, that's pretty much my focus in life at that moment. Not for these men. They kept groping for the door to get to these angels to satisfy their sexual lusts. Now, Paul has given five examples of sexual immorality. Frankly, there are so many deviations, so many variations that even those who believe in the normalcy of all these behaviors can't find enough letters of the alphabet to stand for all of them. Now, just to be as accurate as possible, and I want to take time on this, remember that we said earlier that the pride of the unrighteous, the root of all sin is the root of all sin. That's their character. Well, this was the case of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as well. We get a general commentary on the men of Sodom in Genesis 13, 13. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We get a similar description in Genesis 18, 20. God said that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, quote, is very grave. So what is this wickedness? What is this very grave sin? Jude, verse 7, says Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, so they serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. And so we could technically say that the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah was due to homosexual behavior. But Scripture as a whole indicates that the behavior was merely a symptom of the heart condition of pride. Ezekiel 16, 49, and 50 says that Sodom was filled with pride and haughtiness. Deuteronomy 32, 32, and 33 describes Sodom as poisonous, bitter, cruel, venomous. Isaiah 3, 9 through 16 describes the people of Sodom as prideful in that they proclaim their sin. They're not trying to hide it anymore. There's no more come out of the closet. It's all out of the closet, completely They're wicked, they're haughty. Jeremiah 23, 14 says that those in Sodom, quote, strengthen the hand of evildoers, meaning they endorse, they legalize, they congratulate what Jeremiah calls a horrible thing. The root of all these sexual sins is a haughty, wicked, poisonous, proud, God-defying, sin-congratulating heart. 
And our culture continues on the path of normalizing and congratulating deviant sexual sins. The DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual used broadly by psychologists and psychiatrists, is published by the American Psychiatric Association. It's supposedly the gold standard for treating all mental disorders. It's really the, the Bible, if you, were, uh, if you will, the, of the mental health world. The DSM was first published in 1952 and it listed homosexuality, quote, as a sociopathic personality disturbance. According to their own definition, a sociopath is someone who at a basic level is controlled by impulsive behaviors, behaviors which harm that person and harm everyone around them. In 1973 and 1974, the DSM-2, unlike the Bible, which never changes, the DSM has to keep changing with the times. The American Psychiatric Association walked that back and they delisted homosexuality, instead calling it more broadly sexual orientation disturbance. But that wasn't good enough. In the DSM-3 and in subsequent revisions since then, as far as I know, they're on number five right now, continue to normalize deviant sexual behavior. And now the switch is being flipped over to where if you say deviant sexual behavior is deviant, now you're the one with the mental illness. By the way, there is a growing movement and it is like wildfire that's growing to normalize pedophilia, the sexual attraction to children. What are they saying now? Well, that's just another sexual orientation. And that if you don't accept someone as being sexually attracted to children, then you're bigoted and you're intolerant. So what are we supposed to do as the church? Here's the fourth biblical truth of the unrighteous, the church and the unrighteous. The church and the unrighteous. There are two responses Both are necessary. Both are glorifying to God. The first response is to proclaim the gospel. To proclaim the gospel. Those who have embraced the darkness of sexual sin of all varieties, including gender identity sins, they're not our enemies. They're not. They're human beings made in the image of God who have been deceived into such a distorted view of that image that like all the unsaved, they don't know which way is up spiritually. What about those who would attempt to force the church of Jesus Christ to accept this satanic, ungodly standard? They set themselves up as the enemy of God. They're not our enemy, but they're God's enemy. They're at an even higher level of darkness and degradation because they use the pain and anguish of others to gain power for themselves. They're not our enemy But we cannot obey, we cannot submit, we cannot even appear to do so. And we must speak against them. So what's the church to do? The same thing we've always done. We keep on being the pillar and the the foundation of the truth. We pray to see souls beset by sins of all kinds, including sexual sins brought into the kingdom of Christ. That's what we do. In fact, turn back with me to, to chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but now he clarifies, verse 10, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. What's he saying? Look, if you want to get away from all sinners, you need to be raptured or you need to die. That's the only way. And he's very clear. We don't shun them. We don't reject them. We don't treat them poorly. These are the lost sinners of the world. They need the gospel. We don't condone what they do. And we certainly protect our families. We certainly protect our churches with the truth. But they're not the enemy. They're our mission. You need the gospel. But there is a second response. Not only do we proclaim the gospel, but the the church is to protect the church. We protect the church. What about the one who says, I follow Christ 
and yet condones and practices these self-serving sins without repentance, without regret, without remorse for their affront to God. What do we do in the church? Verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge so far, so much for judge not that you be not be judged, right? The context of that is you don't have the right to judge unbelievers as unbelievers because you don't know. But Jesus says in the church, absolutely, you'd better be judging. Look at verse 13. God judges those outside, but for us, purge the evil person from among you. Oh, that sounds so unloving. Let me ask you a question. If somebody was in your house trying to rape one of your children, would you purge the evil from among you? Absolutely. It is to the glory of God to keep the church pure. This doesn't mean that there aren't many of you right here in this room that still struggle and fight with sexual sin. We understand that. But your minds have been changed. You know it's your enemy. You hate your sin. You're fighting for your continued growth and sanctification and Christ-likeness. I've had the, the sad opportunity to confront multiple people over the past 25 years on the sin of adultery. In some cases, I've seen great sobs and tears and promises of, I'm going to repent, I'm going to do different, and seen a true believer repent. And in other cases, I've seen the death stare that could put a hole in my brain if she was able to. Because there's no repentance. What do you do with the believer who's repentant? You help them. You walk alongside them. What do you do with the unrepentant? You throw them out. Because the church must be pure. There's a fifth biblical truth of the unrighteous. We'll call this one the future of the unrighteous. The future of the unrighteous. There are two possible futures. First, stay unrighteous for all eternity. Stay unrighteous for all eternity. Back in chapter 6, Verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? It's repeated in verse 10, will will not inherit the kingdom of God just in case Paul wasn't clear. The unrighteous man or woman will stay that way for all eternity if he does not repent. In fact, let me speak to the ones who are desperately trying to find their identity in a different gender. Who want to be called she or they. When God made you a man, made you a male. Listen carefully. Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 20 tell us that all the saved of all the ages will be resurrected in physical bodies in order to face the judgment of God. So we know that to be true. Let's add to that truth. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling the story of an unrighteous rich man who died and is pictured in Hades, which is the hell-like waiting place for judgment. And the poor man, who is righteous, named Lazarus, he died. And he's pictured as being seated next to Abraham in the heavenlies. After death, after death, what does Jesus call each of these men? After death, the rich man is the rich man. And he's referred to with the pronoun he. And after death, The poor man is the poor man, and he is referred to with the pronoun he. What what do these truths tell us? Gender identity extends into eternity. And you are the gender that God made you. And so to all who have engaged in the wicked, horrible, immoral act of trying to find identity in changing genders, you will find yourself shockingly at the great white throne judgment in the form that you were born in. The person God created you to be and you willfully rejected that. And you will suffer the consequences of your pride. You will remain in the horrific state of unrighteousness in the place Jesus called hell. 
the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've rejected God at every level, even down to being the person God made you to be. And not only will you be found guilty of sexual sin, you'll be found guilty of every single sin you've ever committed, every wicked thought, every wicked word, every wicked deed, all rooted in the pride of self. Your sexual sin will merely be on the endless list of all the other sins which have offended a holy and perfect God. Now you may say, I don't like that standard. What you like is irrelevant. Because God is the standard of all holiness and righteousness because only God himself is holy and righteous. But there is a second option. Rather than staying unrighteous for all eternity, the other option is to be made righteous. To be made righteous. Did you see what the church of Corinth was made up of? Verse 11, such were some of you. The church had in it a vast array of those who had once been deceived and wicked, those who were sexually immoral, those who went to prostitutes, those who were adulterers, those who were effeminate, those who were homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. No wonder in 1 Corinthians 1, the Apostle Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many powerful. Not many were of noble birth. We are the weirdos of the world. Made into the image of Christ. Can you imagine testimony night at the church of Corinth? Look, until two weeks ago, I was wearing dresses. Until a month ago, I was cheating on my wife. I used to go to the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, pretending to have a business trip, but I was just there for the prostitutes. Can I tell you this? If we had testimony night at Grace Bible Church, it'd be the same thing. But what power there is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, utter transforming power. Now someone might ask, but how did they become righteous? Did they really work hard at stopping doing those things so that God would accept them? No, that's not possible. We don't have the ability to do that. Remember, the unrighteous are deceived. Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. Just stopping doing unrighteous things doesn't make you righteous in the eyes of God. No judge has ever told a mass murderer, well, since you've stopped murdering people, the court will now declare you innocent. No, the unrighteous acts of prideful affront and offense against God must be paid for. The Lord Jesus Christ was sent by his Father to die on the cross of Calvary to pay that penalty of sin, rightly owed to God on behalf of all who would humble themselves and receive this free gift of salvation. But someone might still ask, but how does that make me righteous? I'm going to live the rest of my life with the memory of having had homosexual sex, of cheating on my wife countless times, of even trying to change my gender. I might have even gone through all the processes physically and surgically of changing. What is God going to do with all that? How can I be righteous? Well, the answer is you cannot become righteous on your own, but you can be credited with the righteousness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ has made this offer. You receive and you believe that I died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and I will impute, I will credit, I will attribute my perfect righteousness to you. So that when my heavenly father looks at you, he sees me. That for all eternity, in the divine forgetfulness of God, you will be seen as one ultimately transformed into the one who is righteous. How is this possible? Because Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Micah 7 verse 19 says that God will stomp on your sin and cast all your sins to the bottom of the sea. Isaiah 43 25 says that God marks out, he erases, he blots out the record of your sin. He says, I will not remember your sins. Meaning never, ever, 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 ever in all eternity will you be held accountable for one wicked act you've ever done. 
And just to make sure that the Corinthians are certain, right here in 1 Corinthians 6.11, he gives three assurances to any who would come by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the proof of these assurances is that the believers in the church of Corinth are living examples. That first they were washed. That's their first assurance. They were washed. God makes this offering, this offer of washing away sin in Isaiah 1.18. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. There's another assurance. They were sanctified. They were sanctified. In this case, this speaks of God calling them to salvation in Christ and setting them apart for the gift of forgiveness. Paul's introduction to this letter, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were washed. They were sanctified. And here's the pinnacle. They were justified. They were justified. You remember the word unrighteousness in verse 9? Literally anti-righteousness. Those against righteousness. The word justified here is the same root word only without the prefix which makes you against righteousness. Now you're made righteous. Now you're seen as perfected already in the eyes of of God, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. And even if you wanted to, there is nothing you can do to undo that. How great is the gospel? I'd like to address five groups. First group I'd like to address are those caught in and enslaved by sexual sin in general. There is hope for you. There is plenty of room on the ground at the foot of the cross. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you will be honest with yourself, you know in your heart of hearts that nothing you've tried in this world, no sexual identity, no sexual pleasure, no identity switching, no amount of makeup, no amount of clothing, no number of surgeries, no hormone therapy has ever, ever filled your yearning for satisfaction and joy. But God has made a promise. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And here is your identity now if you will repent and trust the Lord Jesus to forgive you Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can I tell you this? The church of Jesus Christ is filled with former homosexuals and former effeminates, former adulterers, former thieves, former swindlers. There's room for more. There's room for more. Second group I'd like to address, all of us here, to every Christian that's just being blasted by a society that continues to attempt to shape your thinking, to shape your understanding of human sexuality. We can only have one standard. Because I hate to say this, but there are more churches falling for this now than are not. Genesis 1.27, here's our standard. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And there are ways you can stand for the truth to be a pillar and foundation of the truth. At the top of the list is believe it. Believe it and never waver. But there's a second thing you can do. Get married. Let's overtake the world with married people who love Christ. Enjoy that relationship as God created it. Nurture it as a stand against the world's system of lies. You can teach your children on biblical sexuality. You must do it because if you don't teach them, others will try. Truth is the only antidote to Satan's lies. Gone are the days when you wait for the night before a child's wedding to explain the facts of life. They'd better know what 
what God's intention for sexuality is from the time they're children. And one more thing you can do, pray for the lost and those saturated in sexual sin. I have a personal prayer. I want to baptize a repentant homosexual. I want to baptize somebody who used to wear women's clothes. I want to baptize those who are, have been adulterers. I want to baptize somebody who, who has just gotten out of prison because he stole a million dollars from his company. We want to baptize everyone on that list. There's a third group I'd like to address. To the pastors, church leaders, and churches who have bought into the lies of sexual identity changes and sexual sin as something to pander to and to receive and to accept because you have some sick need for the world to accept you. Jesus said in Mark 9, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What is he saying? He's saying that compared to the judgment of God, sinking to the bottom of the ocean and and going to the bottom alive and drowning in horror would be better. You have tried to please Satan. You have tried to please his people. If you're an actual believer in Christ, what are you doing? You have failed in the one task God gave you, and that is to proclaim truth. If you're actually a believer in Christ, then you'd better prove it and you'd better do it fast. Have the courage to proclaim the truth to the lost people. And pastors, if that empties your churches of lost people because they don't want to hear it, then so be it. Rid the church of false believers. Preach your church down to four. Call the wicked to repent. If you don't, as Jesus said to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3, 3, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know it with our I am coming against you. And by the way, this is happening today. If you're a lay elder, if you're a volunteer leader in the church and you're resisting and keeping your trained pastors from standing for the truth, may God have mercy on you for your cowardice. You know what you are? You are spiritually effeminate. You need to man up. And you need to stand for the gospel of Christ. And if you don't, Don't be surprised when God gets you out of the way just as he promised the church at Sardis. And I'd like to address a fourth group. I have a special place in my heart for this this group. The church member of a local church that will not stand for the truth. The regular people who just want to worship Christ and just want to be in a church where their pastors and elders will stand for what's right and will open the Bible and explain it and apply it. If you're in a church that will not stand for the truth, you're on a sinking ship. Get off. You're in a building that's on fire. Get out. You're in in front of a firing squad in front of the condemned. You need to run. This is a church leadership with a target on its back. God is drawing back the bow of judgment. It is quivering in his hand and the arrows are getting ready to fly. Don't stay another Sunday. Don't transition out. Get out. Get out. Get out. Think of the angels desperately warning Lot in Sodom. The angels urged Lot saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. Listen carefully. The book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 proves to us that we will stand before God as a church. Don't be in the wrong group. And finally, to the faithful pastors up north in Canada. In America, when I was a child, we used to say that Canada is free like us. And so we would say to you, may God bless you and keep you. Fight the good fight of the faith. As Paul has said to Timothy, don't despair, don't back down. Don't preach less, preach more. You should preach a year-long series on whatever the government makes illegal. 
The more the government makes threats, the more you must preach. Stand alone if necessary. Yes, even against the own, your own ungodly, cowardly leaders in your own church if necessary. Yes, be arrested. Yes, suffer for the kingdom. Yes, never stop proclaiming the truth. And watch and see as God rewards your faithfulness both in this life and in the life to come. The church is counting on you to proclaim and proclaim and proclaim. As Paul said, how will they hear if there is no preacher? And yes, the world and perhaps even some in your own churches will think you a fool. And they'll say that your words are folly. But remember Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So keep being a fool. Keep preaching folly. Because what the world calls folly, the Bible calls the gospel. Remember your calling. Fulfill your calling. We will stand with you. We are praying for you. And we know that the junk that is north of us is flowing down quickly. And so we stand with you. Let's pray. Our Father, first it's with heavy hearts that we see that we're living in a world that more resembles the world before the flood. We're living in a world where the very institution that you created to protect humanity, the government, to protect us from evil, are now the instruments of evil. They're now the purveyors of evil and they will punish those who would do good. We see this clear example in the Canadian Parliament because they voted unanimously that government is utterly illegitimate. It is not a government. It is now a totalitarian state. Those men and women will stand before the judgment of God and only your mercy will prevent that. Our nation isn't much better and while we understand that we're waiting the, the ultimate monarch, the Lord Jesus Christ, to return in the meantime, we're still here and our hearts are heavy to watch wickedness now seen as normal. And now those who would proclaim truth seen as mentally ill and less. Those who have no knowledge, those who are not woke. At the same time, it is with joy-filled hearts that we gather together. Because the Lord Jesus Christ promised, I will build my church and even this day, on January 16th, 2022, we believe that many thousands of people will come to faith in Christ because of the gospel messages proclaimed today. So once again, Satan's plans are turned against him. We are gathered with joy-filled hearts because we serve the King of all the kings and the Lord of all the lords. And that coming day of judgment where your fire and your words of judgment come, against all who have stood against you and the earth is left utterly devoid of wickedness. And in the quiet moments after the final judgment of Christ on the earth, when those left look around and see that all that are left are followers of Christ, when those who have now come back from heaven the raptured and resurrected saints in perfect bodies now on an earth that Christ will begin to rule. What joy will fill our hearts that day as we sing unto you, not in hope, not in faith, but in realized reality that Christ reigns. In the meantime, 
on behalf of the lost yet to come to faith in Christ, thank you for waiting. Thank you for tarrying. Thank you for leaving us here still in a world beset by horror and sin because your mercy will still bring more in. Let us be instruments of your grace. And I would pray that even in this little tiny local body that nobody knows about except us, that we might see those who formerly were sexually immoral, who were idolaters, who were adulterers, who were effeminate, who were homosexual. And that we would rejoice that now, instead of being in sin, they are in Christ. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.